Good to be with you here tonight. Dale said the topic tonight is avoiding modern idolatry. And as I thought about that subject and began to look what I could find about idolatry, I realized that it's a really big subject. A lot is said in the Bible about idolatry. And as I studied, I began to understand that there's not really too much that's modern about idolatry. It's been going on for a long time. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to stand here tonight and try to point things out to you that might be idolatry in your life. But we want to look at what the Bible says. And I want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. So if we look at uh, Scripture, how is idolatry explained in the Bible? I think most of us would go right to Exodus chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So here we have a pretty plain, God speaking pretty plainly. He says, I don't want you to hold anything above me. I don't want you to worship any image or any other thing. And, uh, you know, we, we don't think too much about worshiping other things but you know in, in other parts of the world uh, I, I just was happened to see Tim Stalsfus over in Thailand and uh, he was giving a little talk and you know they're bowing down and worshiping statues of Buddha and uh, you know it's a real thing in the world but we don't think of it that way as much as, as what they do would, would in other places in the world In Exodus chapter 32, we have the story of the golden calf and how Moses was with uh, the Lord on the mountain. He was with God on the mountain. And the people said, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's, you know, we want a a God. And so Aaron says, bring me your gold. And he makes the, the golden calf. And it tells us, In Exodus chapter 32, verse 10, God says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Uh, In verse, I could have read verse 8 also, where it talks about them uh, sacrificing to other gods. But we see God's response to idolatry. God became angry. God became angry. In Exodus 34, verse 14. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God says, you want to worship, if you want to put someone else in my place, 
makes me angry and it makes me jealous. Just think about that for a little bit. And then think about what it says about the kings. How were the kings judged, good or bad? What was usually the criteria of whether a king was good or bad? It was his idolatry or his service to God, right? So, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 16, it talks about King Omri, who would have been Ahab's father. And he was a pretty successful king. If you look at secular history, it looked like he was a pretty good leader. But in in 1 Kings 16, verse 26, 25 and 26, But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, which was idolatry, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. And in verse 33, it talks about his son Ahab. Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So the criteria for a bad king was a king that was idolatrous. But then we have kings like Hezekiah and in 2 Kings 18, it talks about Hezekiah, and, and it calls him a good king because he followed the Lord with all his heart. So it wasn't so much a focus on how their leadership was or, or how well they fought their enemies, but it was, did they serve God or did they worship idols? Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And so we see this picture of God who wants no one else on the throne of our hearts, no one before him. And it says he's angry and he's jealous. He will not share his glory with anyone else. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I have already thought, and I've heard other people express it, well, is God egotistical? Is God some kind of a narcissist that thinks only of himself? Why would he be so worried about his image, about us worshiping him? Why would he be angry and jealous? And not share his glory with another. And be so exclusive. You know, when we think of, of, of jealousy, of anger, we think of man's reaction to things. We think of uncontrolled rage and vengeance, you know, to get even. We think of jealousy, uh, you know... How we would desire uh, something that someone else has. We would be envious. 
But is that really God's heart? Is that really how God responds? Becky Pippert wrote this. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. We take pride in our own tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Do you understand why God is angry and jealous and will not share his glory with another? It's because he sees mankind and he knows what idolatry does. It's like a cancer that's going to destroy. And it makes him angry. He's not angry Uh, I would say he's not angry for his own sake, necessarily, but it makes him angry to see us being destroyed by the cancer of sin and idolatry. I want to read a passage from Isaiah because I I found it to be so meaningful personally. Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, The goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Who can be compared to God? How can can human beings think that they could make an image out of silver, out of gold, out of wood, And say, here is our God, when God is above all, and he is incomparable. He has no equal. You know, the heathen worship man-made gods who are dead. And Jeremiah 10 talks about 
you know, carving an image out of a tree that can't move. It has to be carried. And so we realize that idolatry, putting something ahead of God in our heart, worshiping something other than God, it makes God jealous and angry. He is incomparable. He is without equal. So we think about that, and it, and it, it really makes us think. But then there's that person that says, well, that's all, that's all fine, but God does not need to tell me what to do. He doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. Let's think about that for a little bit. Does God have the right to tell me what to do? In Deuteronomy 6, 4, it's the famous verses, the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your being. And if that's true, if it's true that there's one God, what does that mean about the devotion of our heart? So if there's many gods, if you're a polytheist, while we're in America, we worship the American God. Uh, We're going to worship the Shenandoah gods because we're here in Shenandoah. And if we travel, we'll worship the God of travel. Or if we're going on a voyage, we'll worship the God of the sea and so forth and so on. And you worship whoever, whatever God is handy. And it's not a big deal. Today you worship this one and tomorrow you worship that one. But if the Bible is true and it says the Lord our God is one Lord and there is only one, what does that mean for your devotion? It can't be divided. There's only one God and our devotion has to go to that God. We believe the Bible teaches that God created the world. And we believe that he is the sustainer of the world. In him we live and move and have our being. And by him all things consist. The Bible tells us that he is the creator and the sustainer of this world. The Bible tells us that he designed you and I. Jeremiah 1.5, that familiar verse. Before I formed you... In the belly, I knew you. Psalm 139.13 from the Amplified Bible. For you did form my inward parts. You did knit me together in my mother's womb. God knows your DNA. He put you together. What does that say about your allegiance to him? Not only that. But if we read Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. Belshazzar was going to have a party. And he took the vessels that were from the temple. And he had a big party. And this is, this is um, what is said to him. 
in verse 23, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. So here he was, worshiping all kinds of idols. And the God in whose, the God who holds his breath in his hand, he pays no regard to. So what is God's claim on our life? He holds our very breath in his hand. He is one God. He deserves our undivided devotion. He's the creator and sustainer of our world. He designed you and I. He knows all of our DNA. He put it together. And he holds every breath in his hand. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's his claim on you. And that's his claim on me. Now, that seems like it should be pretty easy, right? God's incomparable. He has a claim on you, and we should worship him. But what is it about you and I that we struggle with idolatry? You know, I, I looked up, went online, and I looked up the basic needs of all humans and there's different places will give you different numbers but i found this one list eight needs that all humans have a need for survival we want a long and healthy life a need for protection we want safety care and protection for ourselves and for our loved ones the need of freedom freedom from danger fear and pain the need of comfort we need comfortable living conditions we want comfortable living conditions pleasure we want to enjoy food and beverages and experiences The need of relationships. We want companionship and compatibility. The need of success. We want to be superior, winning, keeping up with the Joneses. And number eight, likability. We want social approval. We want to be part of the in crowd. And so... You see that as human beings, we are needy people. We have a lot of needs, a lot of things that we want to fill us. We're empty, we're searching, and our hearts are divided. John Calvin said that our heart is an idol factory. And, you know, our heart automatically makes idols. We cling to things. We want our needs filled And we find it easier to look at other places other than God for for our needs. In fact, 
A lot of the Old Testament is about God trying to win the hearts of his people. Those needy people that have so many wants and needs. And the Old Testament over and over again speaks about how God tries to win the hearts of his people. And he wants to meet their needs. Two themes come up as God tries to win the hearts of his people. And that is, one is marriage. And he uses the theme of marriage. And you and I both know that marriage is the most sacred relationship between humans. And it requires exclusive love and devotion. And God uses the analogy of an unfaithful marriage. God says, you're like an unfaithful partner. You've broken the bond of exclusive love and devotion. And there's even a whole book, basically, in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, where God uses that picture of a broken marriage and says, you are so unfaithful. You're like a spouse that is not faithful to your partner And that's a a picture of idolatry. When we break that sacred bond between us and God, and we don't give him the devotion, we don't want his love. And the second thing, the second picture in the Old Testament is a king. Now, a king has absolute power. And he provides and protects his people. And his subjects then have absolute trust and confidence in his provision and protection. And we know in in 1 Samuel 8, Israel begged for a king. And God told Samuel, you know, these people are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't have any trust or confidence in me. And so we see the picture of marriage and the picture of a king helps us to understand a little bit what idolatry is. God wants to have a relationship with us, one of exclusive love and trust and obedience. So idolatry, putting something... In the place of God, worshiping something other than God, it's like being an unfaithful spouse, breaking that trust and throwing away the love, or or refusing to appreciate the provisions and protections of the king, and it's rebelling against him. Well, let us look at a few, maybe a little bit more Practical teaching on idolatry. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. I heard one preacher say, just think about that. Do not love. In our world today, people say, well, it's love. 
Love is love. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's some love that's out of bounds. Scripture tells us what love is out of bounds. Do not love. It says it right here. Do not love the world. And it defines the world. It talks about the lust of the flesh, which is craving for sensual gratification. Lust of the eyes. The greedy longings of the mind. And the pride of life. Assurance in my own resources. My own ability to take care of myself. Or the stability of of this earth's things. Do not love the world. Why? It says in verse 17, and I, I don't know if I ever really thought about this before, but it says, and the world passeth away and the lusts thereof. All those things, all those needs and wants in my life that I'm looking to other things to fill. The Bible tells us that the world's going to pass away and all those desires are going to pass away too. And you know, it even happens in this life. I worked for a man who talked to me about his property. He was an old man and he said, look, I have this 10 acres and I worked hard. I built this brick house and I have that motorhome out there and I have... This and that. And he said, you know what? I want to get rid of it. I don't even want it anymore. So it even happens in this life. But you know, the lusts, that, the things that we desire, they're going to pass away. It's so temporary. If only I could see that. So many times that's the important thing, is the here and now and the things I want. But they're so temporary. Why is idolatry so terrible? And why does God tell us not to do it? Why does he tell us not to love the world? It's because if we place our love and trust and obedience in anything other than God, it's going to fail. All idols fail. Maybe that will be seen in this life, but certainly it will be seen in eternity. Every idol is going to be a failure Did you ever hear of the law of diminishing returns? This has to do with the lusts of the flesh passing away. The law of diminishing returns. It means that every time I do something, it's a little less rewarding than the last time I did it. For example, if I get up and drink a cup of coffee, I enjoy that. If I drink the second cup, Probably not quite as good. If you drink the third or fourth or fifth, it's just not the same. And many experiences in life are like that. It's a law of diminishing return. And we don't enjoy what we once enjoyed. And there's only one solution to that. And that is to find what truly satisfies. And that, of course, is a relationship with God. Look what it says at the end of verse 17. It says the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Where's our focus at? What are we searching for?
Another, another passage of scripture that probably most of us would think about as we think about idolatry would be Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, it talks about treasures. Verse 19, Matthew six nineteen. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where, ne- where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The interesting thing, the reason I read this scripture, is because that God doesn't tell us that we can't have treasures. He doesn't say that. You know, so many times we think, well, God's just a killjoy. He doesn't want me to have anything I like. And that's just not true. God wants you to have treasures that are everlasting. He wants you to have permanent treasures, indestructible treasures, shiny treasures, treasures that cannot be stolen. And what are they? Well, you need to think about that in your life. What are those treasures that are going to last? It's doing what he would want us to do that would honor and glorify him. And I want, you know, maybe I should just say this. In the New Testament, the only thing that I could really find that it calls idolatry is greed. Twice, in Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5, it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed. Wanting what we don't have or wanting more than what we have. And in our world of acquiring possessions or desiring to acquire them, that's good advice for us. But I want to be careful. You know... I've worked, <clears throat> I've worked most of my life, and I'm probably not the hardest worker. But it always seems like every dollar has a place to go. And so when a preacher gets up front and says, you know, don't put your mind to that sort of thing, kind of often wondered, you know, hey, I need to work. I got bills to pay. My car's going to go bad my roof's going to go bad. I need to save up. So I, I'm not here tonight to tell you, hey, don't save any money. But don't put your trust in it. Don't put your trust in it. Look for treasures that are going to shine on into eternity. Your family. Witnessing to other people. You can think of a lot of other things. Think about those things. That's where your heart should be. Now to close, I want to read one passage yet from from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And the topic is avoiding idolatry. Avoiding idolatry. And here's the passage of scripture that's going to keep you from idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests of the, the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. What was the advice to kings? Don't multiply horses. What did that mean? Well, that was their military might. That was their security. Horses. How can we apply that to us today? Where do we find our security? Is it in our bank account? Is it in the things that we have? In our retirement? Where do you find your security? God tells, God says to the king, I don't want you to multiply wives to yourself. Now, perhaps that had to do with, with sexual control. But more likely it had to do with marrying the neighboring country's wife so that you had an alliance and that they wouldn't fight you and you wouldn't fight them. And the heathen wives... It says, will lead you to worship their idols. So you see, it, it was an alliance, and it led to the wrong thing. And it, it's like us today when we compromise. We compromise on things, maybe in business or in friendships. But we'll make compromises that will lead us down the wrong road. No compromise. Then it says... Do not multiply gold and silver. And we talked about Matthew 6 already. Where are our treasures at? We're not to put our trust in silver and gold. Now here it is. The really important thing. What is the king supposed to do when he gets on his throne? He's supposed to go to the priests and the Levites and he's supposed to get the law. Now was that the first five books of the Bible? Not sure if that was all of that or what. And what was the king supposed to do? 
The king was supposed to get himself a new scroll and write it out word by word. The whole thing. And it says you're to keep that with you and you're to read it every day. As long as you live that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. You want to know how to defeat the idols in your life? You want to know how to stay true to the Lord? It's in a relationship with him. You read your Bible and see what he has to say. And you listen to him. And you pay attention. And that is how what's going to rescue you from idolatry in your life. Finding something else to worship. That's what's going to keep you from finding something else to worship. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish theologian. And he wrote a book many years ago. And this was the name of the book. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I'll say it again. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Sound like a very strange title, doesn't it? But what's expulsive? To throw out. To get it out of my life. And where is the power? Where is the expulsive power to throw idolatry out of our lives? To throw the worship of anything else out of our life except God. Where is that expulsive power found? It's found in a new affection. And that new affection is when we love the Lord. That's going to take care of idolatry. When you read your Bible and when you learn to love him. I, I remember an old man at, preaching at Fairview and he read from uh, yeah, Psalms and he read that psalm that said, I love the Lord. And he talked about how he loved the Lord. And I thought, well, that's what I want. I want to love the Lord and have that relationship with Him. It expels all the idols. It expels the worship that we would want to have to any other person but Jesus Christ. That's what I have to share with you tonight. The expulsive power of a new affection. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, We recognize that our hearts are prone to wander from you. And there is so many things in this life that call for our attention. Lord, we're so needy and we we look to the wrong things. Help us to have a relationship with you that will stand the test of time. That we will have a relationship with you, a love for you that will expel all idols from our life. Lord, bless this church. Bless each one here tonight. And may we walk faithful to you and take others along with us. So bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.